Tonight is Wednesday. It is August 12th, 2020, and we're ready to begin our worship service. Let's begin with prayer. Father, thank you for this time we have this evening. We pray for uh, life, health, and strength, and we pray that as we open your word that we will be prepared with humility to see your thoughts and to grow in grace. So we pray for wisdom this evening and clarity so that we will understand what you have for us. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. All right. So, as you know, we've been studying in Romans chapter 8, and we are just about finished with 17. So it looks like we're going to be in 18 tonight. Romans 8, 18. Some closing comments for 17, but we will quickly move into 18, I'm sure. So, we will um, take some time, as we normally do, for feedback, questions, comments, thoughts, before we continue. The floor is open. So, uh, Mr. Presley, should these, these questions be formulated or surround Romans 8, what we, the last time we, uh, we met, or can they be of another subject? They can be whatever's on your mind. Well, I have something that's on my mind. Mm-hmm. Um, I was listening to the, uh, I guess, the evangelistic channels. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm not going to mention his name, but his initials are K. Let's see, K. C. K. Uh, K- anyway. C. Anyway, he was talking about, he was giving the gospel at the end. Horns were blowing. This is the new way they have church. When there's something that they say amen to, they blow their horns. Because they can't meet because of COVID. So, so anyway, what interested me is that, uh, yes, what, what interested me was he was given the gospel and he was talking about the Lord's spirit. And he referenced two scriptures. He referenced, I looked at Isaiah uh, chapter 53, verse 9. It, 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 didn't, it didn't say what he was saying there. And then I looked at his other scripture, which was 1 Peter 3.19, uh, and 20, 318 and 19. So basically the question I'm asking is, basically he said that when Christ died, uh, we understand that Christ has two natures. Uh, he has a human nature and he has his nature that comes as, because he is God, he's the word. And he's true humanity and undiminished deity in one person forever. So this minister seemed to say that both Christ, Christ died, uh, his body, in other words, Christ suffered death. In other words, both natures suffered death 
and I don't think that that's true at all. He really scared me. I, I, don't, I just don't think he understands what's going on in the hypostatic union. Or maybe I don't. So my question is, uh, does anyone have the scriptures that, I think 3.18 says, uh, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation with the imprisoned spirits. So it was around these scriptures that he intimated that Christ died in body and spirit. Um, I was always under the impression that Christ died only in his humanity died. Deity cannot suffer death. So I think you have the gist of my question. Uh, yeah. If um, you, could, you could further. Yeah, I, I, I do. I, I hear you. Provide some information. Mm -hmm. And um, what I would say you have correctly assessed it. That's my thought. That, yes, you're right. Uh, God can't die. That is not something God can do, is die. And uh, God didn't die for our sins. The man, Christ Jesus, did. And when, when it says we are reconciled through the body of Christ, he's talking about the, the humanity of Christ. It's not the deity of Christ. Christ could never die. Uh, and neither could God the Father or God the Holy Spirit. Uh, they, death is not uh, something that the divine nature would allow. Uh, it's just not, they're not capable of death. They never had a beginning and they will never have an ending. Death. And so what we see of Christ is he's the mediator or the, the uh, here, I'm looking at, um, I'm looking at First Timothy chapter two and it's a scripture we've used for quite a long time to to talk about both purposes that we have as a church uh, it's two three through five that's what i'm where i'm going or th two three through six we could use so we'll look at that um just giving everybody a minute to get there and it says, this is good and pleases God, our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. So this is, this verse 4, first of all, it's God's will that all be saved. We, we already know that. There's other verses that talk about God's desire that all people be saved. But God didn't just have the desire, but he did something about it. And this come to the knowledge of the truth is that word epinosis for knowledge, which means deep knowledge. Uh, you know, this truth that we have in the church age is said to be the deep things of God. So then we have uh, verse 5. This gets more to your question. Verse 5. There is one God and one mediator between God and man. Oh, I'm sorry, God. I'm thinking of King James between God and mankind, and who is it? The man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom 
for all people. This has now been witnessed at the proper time. So even if I just, there's other scriptures that talk about Christ becoming a man, you know, the word, he was uh, with God, he was, was God. But then in verse 14, this is John 1, it says the word and the word became flesh. And meaning he took on human nature and made his dwelling among us. So the reason why he came, part of the reason why he came in the incarnation was so that he could be a propitiation for our sins. Uh, God can't do it. And since man sinned, God sent man to redeem man from sin. And that is the man. And I like what it says here, the man, Christ Jesus. So, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. He didn't, he's, he's not for some people, for all people. This has now been witnessed to at the proper time. So, even if you look no further, I mean, this verse pretty much... Well, first, I, I'm not sure why somebody would say. I've not even heard that in theology that uh, people think God can die. I've really not heard that uh, being offered as some sort of solution. So I'm not, not quite sure. So when he, said it, when he said his spirit, um, I don't know if that's what he meant exactly, but he intimated that, um, that God, in other words, he didn't, it wasn't clear there was a separation of hypostatic union. Uh, I don't think it wasn't a clear message to anybody. He just, it was generic, very generic spirit. And it was, I, I don't know if that's what he believes, but that's what I certainly walked away as a possibility that he said. So. Yeah, I, I'm, in fact, I was just writing some things about salvation and updating some papers. One of the things I wrote recently was about uh, what people do with salvation. And many people, uh, they either minimize it or they overcomplicate it. So when I say they minimize it, they don't give really enough information to help people understand uh, who God is and what he's done. Uh, so... Yeah, here, here it is. So I can read some of it. It says, overcomplicating the gospel message, just as dangerous as, well, that's one, hold on. Minimizing. says, when we talk about the gospel and how it saves, we must be sure that we do not go beyond what is written. That's 1 Corinthians 4, 6. Salvation is very important to God, and he has gone to great lengths to secure it. He did not spare his own son, but he gave him up for us all. Right? Or... The very common passage, God loved the world, he gave him his one and only son, whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. If God went to all this sacrifice to provide us a way of salvation, we need to pay close attention to the plan. Anyway, we know about minimizing it. They come up with statements about, uh, you know, emotional things. Uh, many are told to repent of all their sins, invite Christ into their hearts become emotional, join a church, recite the sinner's prayer, say the magic words, repeat after me. You know, these are all things people say when it comes to telling people the gospel. Become moral, 
dedicate your life to Christ, promise to do better, and many more that you can think of. Now, I might have to add that one that you just mentioned, <laughs> which I've never heard well, before. Well, all of those things that you just mentioned, uh, coincidentally, most of them he used in his appeal. Yeah. So, uh, I think it was, you know, his emphasis was the spirit. But when you say spirit and you say God went to the, the depths and, you know, uh, like it says, he was saying that he went down to the depths of hell to declare his victory. Uh, and I, I think he just, it was an emotional appeal. Like he got up, he got carried away. He didn't make that clear. Not under, I'm not sure if that's exactly what he believed, but maybe it was just uh, an oversimplification of what he was trying to deliver he was given the gospel. Yeah, I mean, this is a very critical time if you think about it. And uh, just, it says, many have done these things, all of that, and do not have the proper understanding of the gospel or their response to it. Instead, a minister or evangelist has pronounced them saved. So such a critical message demands that we be accurate with the word of truth. God's certainly particular, and we should be too. And if you look at all the detail that we know, this is me talking, not no more reading. But if you look at all the detail that God has put into salvation, how carefully um, planned and orchestrated and carried out and all the detail. And then we come along with this cavalier attitude. Oh, just if you just say the magic words or invite Christ into your heart, or, you know, we can't... You know, there may be some things we can simplify, but not the way of salvation, which is the very, it's very pivotal to, uh, you know, your eternal destiny. So if you're going to be saved or lost, and now you got people mucking up the waters of uh, what salvation is or is not, and we're supposed to be people who are evangelists or pastors or or just ambassadors of Christ, you know, ministers of reconciliation. And if we can't get the message right, then, you know, it's no better than the Pharisees trying to, as Jesus told them, he says, you guys are in the way. People are trying to get saved, and you're in the way of them getting saved. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I'm not sure what he was saying, but uh, no. No, it is very clear. And I, I haven't even read in theology where someone has offered some explanation that God died for our sins. I, I don't know anybody who would say that. It is the man, Christ Jesus, who died on the cross. And yes, he had a body, soul, and spirit. And it even... That's not different from what we have or what Adam had when he was created. Jesus Christ, the last Adam, had everything, body, soul, and spirit, when he entered this world as a man. So, those are my thoughts. Others? Other thoughts? Or other questions out there? 
not, we'll just have to roll right into Romans. So if you have your Bibles, let's go there. I'm turning to it. Let's turn into it. I'm clicking to it. <laughs> Romans chapter 8. So I'll pick up where we, I'll read a couple verses to pick up the context and then we'll get to where we are. So verse 15, the spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. So a couple thoughts on, we already covered the heirs part, the fact that we are heirs of God, which is monumental already. We don't have to say more. It is huge. And then it says, we and, and... and we, we covered why uh, Galatians chapter 4, 7 or so, did not talk about co-heirs with Christ. It only spoke of our heirship, the fact that we were children and heirs. But Paul in, in Romans adds another feature of uh, the relationship that we have and the position that we hold. And we are co-heirs with Christ. So it gives a condition if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. So we discussed the sufferings. We talked about uh, last time, uh, just if I pull up some of the notes I had, um, said that uh, we would share in his glory. We went to Philippians 2, 5 through 11. We talked about how Christ, even though he, was, he had equality with God. He did not consider it to be something to be clung to. But he, but he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. But even after all of that, it says that God highly exalted him, gave him a name that is above every name. And basically what we determined, we went to Colossians 2.15 where it said, how behind the scenes, what you saw on the cross was one thing. The spiritual backdrop was Christ defeating the heavenly hosts, the spiritual wickedness in high places. He def- it says he triumphed over them by means of the cross. Now, we, didn't, we don't see that by looking at the cross from our perspective. And we would never know that that was going on except for... Uh, our inside information where God the Holy Spirit has led us in. Then we talked about many things where Christ said to the church, uh, if you overcome, there's a lot of suffering going on in the church, but if you overcome, uh, I will grant you to be seated with me in my kingdom. And all of the rewards for the seven churches were physically on the earth when Christ comes back to reign. So we identified that the ground for us receiving the glory or sharing in the glory 
is where Christ receives glory as the king here on earth. And he will share his rulership with us as we have overcome, as he has overcome. It's, notice it's share. We don't get, just because we suffer, we get our own glory. What we get is a share of his glory. He's already won the victory. We are only uh, executing in his stead. We are not carving out our own path. We are walking in his steps. And by that, we are gaining the victory. So our suffering will never equal to what Christ suffered for us. So uh, the ground of suffering is this earth. On this earth will be the rewards. And we, t we talk about uh, suffering and glory. And then the glory and the reward is a privilege for us. And the privilege is that we have responsibility. So we can read Ephesians 1, uh, where it says, God has blessed us in the heavenly realm with all every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, just as he chose us in him. So when we read that, what we find is that it comes down to responsibility. It's not just, oh, we're just so blessed, you know, and I know people today, they talk about it. We're just so blessed. God called us and we're, you know, we're beyond blessed and we're called and but they don't talk about what our role is and it has to do with the responsibility that God has put us in that position that is why we are blessed with every spiritual blessing in heavenly place because he has identified us with the person of Christ and who is the person of Christ well he is the ruler of all things and being the ruler of all things we also now share in that role now, get this, you will share in that role on earth if you suffer with him. If you sh Then you may also share in his glory. We are reading it right there in Romans 8, 17. But you have that eternal role outside of the bounds of the earth, which is the universe, all things. That's when it says, all things are yours. That's, that's because you are in that role of sonship. You are tied to, you know, identified with the, per, with the person of Christ. And in this role, there is no suffering that is, it is contingent upon. We share and inherit all things from God. As Christ did, and why? Do, so it didn't say if you are this and if you are that. This is our airship, which we read about, and I just quoted to you in Ephesians one, three, and four. It has to do with the fact that God sovereignly chose you in Him before the creation of the world. That's why you have the role. So if we look at Ephesians, there's one verse that also speaks of it. Ephesians chapter 1. And if you look at the last couple verses. So it's described in verse 18. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. The riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. So he's talking about us all throughout the chapter. 
where it talks about Christ being raised far above all principality and power and rule and all that, and all that have dominion. And why is it saying all that? Because we are in the place of rulership over all things. So then it says who we are in terms of Christ. Verse 22, and God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church. So we are in him and all things are under his feet. Which And, who, and we're the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. This is not contingent upon whether you suffer with him or what you do or what your attitude is. It is only, there is one contingency, that you are a believer and you have been baptized by the Holy Spirit. Well, if God called you from eternity past, where it says he chose you in him before the creation of the world, then he knows you're going to be a believer. That's why he chose you. Well, it's not why he chose you, but because he could have chose he had the choice to choose other believers instead of you. But he chose you as a, a believer to share uh, this fullness in him that fills everything in every way. Let's go back to <clears throat> Romans. Romans. So, so there's two ways to look at that. I just, just wanted to make sure we understood that that is not just... The contingent where you will be able to, you know, share Christ's rulership of this earth with him. And uh, and lastly, one thing about these rewards. I wouldn't, I don't want to walk away from these verses and think, well, everybody. I remember I used to talk to somebody at work a long time ago. And he didn't really believe in rewards. His theology didn't focus on that. He was just like, we're just happy if we could just make it in the door. You know, we just barely can just get in and be saved. What are you talking about? Rewards. So, so when I showed him rewards in the Bible and how there's a difference between reward and a gift, then he started seeing things a little different. But then he still didn't want to really um, focus on the rewards so I said, how many people do you think are going to be rewarded? He said, everybody will be rewarded. I said, no. Rewards are given to those who have overcome. Who literally, I mean, this, I would, my point in saying this is, we cannot trivialize rewards. Paul speaks about it in very tough terms where he talks about uh, I need to keep my body under control lest while I preach to others I myself will be disqualified for the prize he says we don't want to be like a boxer beating the air he, he likens it to the Olympian games where you have to go into strict training and so forth I, I don't want people to think rewards are easy well but we also don't want to think want people to think rewards are unattainable as well. So just keep in mind, you will sacrifice something if you're going to receive a reward. This is not something where you just casually float into because you, just because you believed in Christ. Well, believing in Christ is not a reward, it's a gift. 
It's by grace. And the fact that people receive rewards, rewards are earned for service on the battlefield. So, just wanted to, to make sure we understood that. Back to Romans chapter 8, verse, looking at... So, I just wanted to make this, this so that we may also share in His glory. I think we've covered that part. And we talked about how suffering is a privilege and, you know, that we identify with Christ in a special way. And we looked at Romans uh, one twenty nine. We talked about suffering produces perseverance and perseverance hope and all of that in Romans chapter 5. So just as a recap, so we know suffering is a part of our spiritual growth. And we discussed how God disciplines everyone, the son he receives, and so forth. So, uh, but now we want to focus our attention on verse 18. So, 18 says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. So, we're going to get into some pretty lofty scriptures. I say lofty. What I mean is, uh, when you look at these passages, it almost doesn't seem like we should be there. Seems like this is a position that should be reserved for God. And yet, we're there. As you see, these verses unfold, 18 through 22. It just seems like God should be doing this. Us? You, you mean... the. Creation is waiting for us? And when I think about who I am and some of the folly that I'm involved in and foolishness sometimes, I think, really? I, I have the capacity for this? And yet, this is what the scripture says about me. So I have to realize that me plus the ministry of the Holy Spirit, which is, it gives me the the actual competence and the capability to execute whatever God has made me to be. And I can have trust in the fact that God knows what he's doing. And he wanted to bring many sons into glory. So uh, I'm one of those sons. So let's, let's look at these verses and let's consider what Paul is saying. So let's look at the first part, I consider. So I looked at that word consider and it's logizomi. And it's, now here's the thought, it's in the middle voice. So Paul, Paul is saying, this is something, this is an act that you perform on yourself. So when it says the middle voice, it's like, I am thinking about my own self. I am thinking within myself about myself. So the middle voice says that. It means to take inventory, that is to estimate to conclude, to count, to reckon, uh, to compute, to calculate. That's what the word means. It's uh, the same word when we were in Romans 6, when he was trying to tell us about the sin nature and how we've been separated from it. And we're no longer, if, if Christ died, and, and he cannot die again, and then he's referring to us, and we can't, once we've been separated from our sin nature, it's final. We, we are no longer in Adam anymore. Literally, we're in Christ. So, we're, so then in verse 11, 611, it says, Reckon yourselves. Count, and that same word, logizomai, 
Logizomy is there. Count yourselves dead indeed unto sin and alive in Christ through our Lord Jesus Christ. So, you know, we stop there because we should stop and think about what he's saying. Right? He's telling you to consider, reckon, count. You know, look at this situation that you're in and think about it. Let it settle in your head, in your mind before you move on because it matters what you think about yourself. And so that's just, this whole legizomy thing is important. God's not going to do the thinking for you here. He's not going to estimate whether it's worth it or not, the suffering that we were, we we're going to go through, the present sufferings. So it, those definitions I'm getting come from Strong and Thayer. So based on the facts given about our inheritance, Paul now begins to draw some necessary conclusions. It's not easy, and this is what you need to first realize. It is not easy to live in this world. It's hard. <laughs> Jesus says, in this world, you will have trouble. Now, I can tell you, obviously, God chose us to be here in this country and where we are today. Now, people consider trouble whether or not, a lot of times, whether or not they have money or not. If they're poor or rich or middle class, people will then assign certain sufferings to those classes. But really, that is not really what God is talking about here. Just being in the world, period, one, because it's a mess down here, things are what they are. This is Satan's uh, leadership in this world, and he cannot control the volition of every person who uh, is in it. And as a result, what a mess. You got all this stuff going on and Satan cannot control it. It is just spinning and spiraling out of control. So we got currently this worldwide pandemic, which is really not the first and really not the worst uh, of the world. But it's stinging as well as all the uh, racial unrest and, you know, how people look at each other and there's wars, there's killing, there's all, I can go on, but as you know, this world is fast deteriorating. And as we already said, it will be destroyed. So if we're living down here and God put us here, there's a specific reason that we are here. That is to make sure that we are able to serve on the battlefield. And as far as the people that are here, we, our job is to be ambassadors ministers of reconciliation so it's important so what paul does is he starts to draw some conclusions about how his life is in this world but he also knows that he's got to compare that with something else so uh, the only way you can consider a reckon or count is if you weigh things on both sides you can't just say i consider this is better than that well, the only way you're going to know it is if you, it's like you have your hands and you're starting to weigh them, lift them, you know, weighing each one, each side carefully. That's what it means to consider, right? To calculate, 
you know, well, the weight of this one is, you know, five grams. The weight of this one is six grams. Well, the weight of six grams is, is more than the one. Well, that's the idea. But we're not weighing something in grams or pounds. We're weighing whether or not the suffering that is here is worth comparing with the glory that is revealed in us. That's what we're trying to weigh. So when he says, I consider, well, the only way you can do that is if you understand what's at stake on both sides. So this goes back to the fact uh, of your sonship. And you're a son and you, you inherit all things. And, uh, you know, that you're an heir, an heir of God and all of that. Who God called you to be, and we already went through all this so far in Romans 8, and what all that means, and then you have to consider all of the suffering that is also on the other side of that. So Paul makes some conclusions. So he says, I consider that our present sufferings, and he says our present sufferings, he's calculating his own experience. So what I thought was, maybe we'll read some passages of what Paul's experience was. So maybe if we calculate his, his suffering, and or we look at it, maybe we'll have some idea of our own and we can compare it. So in 2 Corinthians, there's a couple scriptures we'll turn to. There's a lot more with Paul's suffering. There's the one in Acts where God told Paul, Go and I will show you the things that you must suffer for my name. But in 2 Corinthians 11, so he says, verses 23 to 33, he says, and I'll just read it, are they servants of Christ? I am out of my mind to talk like this. I am more. I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the forty lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a day and a night, a night and a day, in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles. In danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled, and have often gone without sleep. I have not I have known hunger and thirst, and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Besides everything else I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak and I do not feel weak? Who is led into sin, and I do not inwardly burn? If I must boast, I, must, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus, who will be praised forever, knows that I am not lying. In Damascus, the governor under King Arteus had, uh, had the city of the, the Damascenes guarded in order to arrest me. So there was a lot that happened. And oh, and then it says, but I was lowered in the basket from a window in the wall and slipped through his hands. So he's, he's going through some of the sufferings. That's a pretty good list of sufferings. 
that Paul experienced. And all of these were for the name of Christ. Paul did not have a life like this when he was a Pharisee at all. It was only when Paul confessed that he was a believer that he began to suffer for the name of Christ. So there's another verse, just to bring it closer to home, Acts chapter 16. Let's look at that one. Verses 22 and 23. So it says, The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. So what I understood was uh, they used to call this Beaten with rods is what they would call caning. Uh, in these rods, these uh, bamboo rods, would cause whelps and bumps to, to just appear on the body. It was just horrible. I mean, they, these are instruments of torture that they figured out inflict pain. So, listen, they were stripped and beaten. I mean, they were, this is not something you could have, I remember when I was a kid, this is, and I knew I was going to get in trouble. So I would uh, put some books in my pants. So I knew if I was going to get a whooping, those books would uh, shield me from it. Well, no, they were stripped and beaten with rods. And after they had been, this is verse 23, severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. So he was, when he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. I'll just keep going for a little bit, just to get Paul and Silas's uh, demeanor. At about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was a violent, such a violent earthquake, and the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open, and everyone's chains came loose. So, just to get back to the thought, I want to read what the jailer came to. Uh, verse 29. The jailer called for lights, rusted, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. Meaning, because if he, they were missing, and he was you know, tasked to guard him carefully, them carefully, he would have been killed. He brought them out, verse 30, and said, and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And this is a classic scripture. They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, or Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. They spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in the house. So, just to note, salvation happened as a result of what Paul and Silas went through. And then, just back to Romans, as we know, when we talk about suffering, this is Paul's understanding of suffering. We're going to get to these verses. Romans eight thirty-five. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And then he goes through all of these things. So even if these things didn't happen to Paul, they could have happened to Paul. So we just want to note what he says. What shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, 
or hardship, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger of sword. As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor neither angels, nor demons, neither the present or the, nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So the thought here is when we think about the suffering is Paul said he couldn't even think of whatever they do to you that's under the sun, whatever kind of suffering it is, it doesn't matter. He understands the whole gamut of suffering, and he knows that nothing is going to be able to separate him from the love of God that is in Christ. So, uh, also, what you have to see is suffering may be different for us and for those apostles. Just like when we studied 2 Corinthians 4, and five, uh, we saw that Paul and those apostles that were leading out in the church age were the point persons, and they received the most suffering. Uh, those who led out in the beginning, Paul, when we look at Philippians, was a thank you letter to the Philippians for supporting him through all of it. He says they are going through the same sufferings that he was going through. So it, suffering is a part of the New Testament. I don't know how you can get around it. Uh, when Jesus says, in this world, you will have trouble. Listen, as long as our feet are on this ground, it's going to be trouble for us. The world will hate us. But remember, there's a dichotomy there. If you live for the world, it says the world will love you as his own. Right? But if you live for Christ, the world will hate you. You will have to pick up your cross and follow him. And picking up a cross is an instrument of death, and it is not pretty. So suffering, what it does, is it tests the focus of your reality. So this world is a bedrock of suffering, just in and of itself. It's confusion, it's trouble, it's uh, difficulty. And then the ruler of this world hates us. So it tests what reality you really focus on. And when we talk about that reality in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, there's a scripture that speaks of it. So it says, uh, verse 18, so we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. So, so notice we're talking about that same thing. When we're calculating, when we're considering that our present sufferings are not worth comparing, right? We have to consider what is happening from what we are going through and as opposed to what is the hope that is set before us. So where's your focus? What, is your focus on the reality of what God has for you, the hope of your calling? Or is your focus on uh, what happens in this world and the suffering that you may possibly undergo? So we're getting Paul's perspective of this. 
And uh, he's saying, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. That's the end of 2 Corinthians 4, 18. So even though this world may cause us suffering, it's temporary. But what is unseen is eternal. What The hope right, that is set before us. What God has called us to. We're sons, right? All of that is eternal. So let's look at it so that our present sufferings are not worth comparing. Oh, well, we should look at one other thought before we go there. And this is in 1 Peter 2, 19 through 21. Let's look at that. 1 Peter chapter 2, 19 through 21. So it says, For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, it is commendable before God. To this end, uh, to, to this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. So this, this is just to note that all suffering that's happening in this world is not suffering for Christ. So he gives an example of a person who did something wrong, and then they were punished for it. Well, that's not suffering for Christ. I would say a lot of suffering that happens in this world, sometimes we're suffering because of bad decisions we make, or, you know, sin nature, uh, we're indulging in our sin nature, or uh, we just are ignorant, or, you know, it just happens to be that the world itself causes a confusion and trouble. So we just have to know that suffering for Christ is a different category uh, making sure we understand that thought, that every all suffering is not the same. Some suffering is not for Christ. Even though we're here, we could be trying to, uh, you know, fulfill our plans, our purpose, uh, what what's good for us. Right? And if we suffer along those, we can't think, oh man, you know, uh, I'm being, I'm suffering for Christ. So keep in mind that that's important. So, but here. Even though we went through all this and we talked about calculating and considering it, here's the answer to what Paul says. He says, it is not, it says that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. It says they are not worth. So I took you through all the considerate and, and what is our present sufferings? What was Paul's present sufferings? But then when he figured it all out, he said, it's not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Not worth. So, don't even, so to say that they are not worth comparing, he's saying, I'm not even going to, I can't even put them up against what God, uh, the glory that will be revealed in us. It's not worth the comparison. Now, that's something to consider. So when calculating, his estimate is not worth comparing. And if we look at that same verse that we were in in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, if we just run back to that one, 2 Corinthians 4, 
So, oh gosh, look at our time. Here we go again with the time. So 2 Corinthians 4, 16. So it says, um, let me get to it. So it says, therefore, we do not lose heart. So losing heart has to do with being discouraged. You know, uh, being downcast because of the things going on. So remember in verse uh, 8, it says, we are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we are alive, we're always, we're always being given over to, to death for Jesus' sake so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. So then death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. See, this is where I was telling you that when Paul and those apostles, they, they really were the trailblazers for the church, for us. The fact that we enjoy what we have now, and there is suffering for us, and it may be a different quality or kind of suffering, but we still suffer in this world if we attempt to live godly in Christ Jesus. So verse 16, therefore we do not lose heart. We do not become discouraged. And here's why. Though outwardly we are wasting away. So this is what happens, what effect the suffering has upon us. The suffering may even have the effect of destroying our bodies. We may have to give up our bodies, uh, our life in this world, <coughs> due to suffering. So though outwardly we are wasting away, Yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. So this is the constant reminder of who we are in Christ. Our identity is ever before us. Every day we are strengthening that which is the hope that is set before us. And so verse 17, for our light, notice our light and momentary, we said they were temporary, light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory and here he says that just far outweighs them all. It's not, as Paul would say in, in our verse, it is not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. In this verse he says, our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So it is not something... That we can compare. In other words, we can't even say, well, I give up this much and I'm sure God will give me back that much. No. <laughs> God is saying the little bit of suffering, the little bit of time you're here in this world. And what will that parlay into the future will be not something you can even compare. It's not something you will even think about in terms of, well, I went through that and that was worthy compensation for what I went through. It's not even worthy to compare the glory. What is on the other side of this? As I said, as we go through these next few verses, you will be thinking, what am I doing here? Why am I in this position? This is what God has called you to. If you haven't really stopped to think about it, you should do what we said earlier. Consider, count, right? understand what God has done. You know, it's going to take some time for you to learn about it. But once you learn it, 
allow that identity to become part of who you are. Let that be the conversation that goes on in your mind. Who you are, what God has called us to, the hope of our calling. Suffering produces perseverance, and perseverance produces hope. And hope does not make us ashamed. It does not matter what the world throws at us. It doesn't matter how ugly it is, how embarrassing. Remember, Christ was stripped naked and hung on a cross before his mother and all of the people that loved him for us. He was beaten. And it didn't matter. Despise the shame. So we have an obligation. It is not to live according to the flesh, but to live according to the ministries of the Spirit. So, there's much more we could say. We've got to talk about the glory that will be revealed in us. and When does this happen? When is all this going to happen for us? We'll talk about that and... We'll talk about what happens at the rapture and so forth. And, you know, uh, we, we got work to do in this verse yet. So, but we don't have enough time to finish it all. No rush. But uh, I'll pause to see if there are any thoughts before we close. Otherwise, we will have to close. All right. Yeah. Thoughts? No, that was good. Thanks. All right. So we'll conclude with that and pick it up next week. Let's bow our heads. All right. Gracious Father, we thank you for calling us from eternity past, for choosing us in Christ before creation. And oftentimes as we live in this world, it's tough, it's hard. And we realize that it stings, it's tough. It's not something that we can just say is easy. But we pray that we will develop within us a hope that will be stronger and far outweigh whatever sufferings that come against us in this world. As we know, that you have called us and that you have given us this position and that we are your children. So we thank you for those who have joined us and we pray that we will continue to, to grow in grace and that we'll be back next week so we can continue this line of reasoning. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. 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 Amen.